Need a moment to collect myself after that. One of the most important things we learn as Christians is how to ask good questions. The kinds of questions that we do ask have a way of revealing the quality of our faith. Knowing how to good, ask good questions is a sign that we're growing in our faith, no matter our age. But when James and John approach Jesus today, they don't ask a question. Jesus has just told them some very important things. They probably should be full of questions. We would expect them to ask him now, but instead of asking Jesus a question, James and John say to Jesus, Teacher, we would like you to do what we want. Kids, don't try that at school. James and John were close friends of Jesus. They had followed him ever since the day they called him, they, he called them off the boat. They had seen Jesus do many incredible things. They'd seen him say to a paralyzed man, stand up, take your mat, and walk, and then watch with their mouths open as the man did paralyzed man stood up and rolled up his mat and walked. They'd listened nervously as Jesus had argued with the religious leaders. They'd studied and pondered and asked questions about the puzzling little stories he would tell them called parables. James and John were two of only three people invited up the mountain to witness his face being transformed and lit up and glowing. James and John had been there and done that with Jesus. We might say they were sort of like teacher's pets. But today, they flunk. They flunk an important test. As they're walking up to Jerusalem where the big government buildings are and where the biggest church is and where all the important people live, Jesus is teaching the disciples what's about to happen to him. He says, first, I'll be arrested. Then I'll be handed over to the crowds. And then I'll be beaten and mocked and spat upon. And then they will kill me. And then on the third day, I will rise again. One thing I know I would be thinking, if I were one of the disciples, is that I would have some questions about what Jesus had just said. James and John don't. They don't seem to understand what he said. They think Jesus has come, but to come, come to be powerful in a worldly kind of way. Kids, they thought Jesus might be like a superhero, special powers. Or if you're into this show, they thought Jesus was coming to play and win the Game of Thrones. If Jesus is going to be very powerful, they thought, then we could be powerful too. So instead of asking Jesus, teacher, what can we do for you? They say, teacher, when you come into your glory, let us sit one on your right and the other on your left. 
I know I'm at my worst when I think only of myself. There are probably times when each of us can remember when we were so selfish that it's embarrassing to remember. Children, I remember one Halloween. Actually, this was probably multiple Halloweens when I did this. See, I have two younger brothers, and when they were really young, I could easily trick them into giving me their candy. <laughs> so we would trade candy at the end of trick-or-treating, and I would say things like, I'll trade you my candy corn if you'll trade me your Reese's Buttercups. Even trade. So even trade. Stephen and Scott, I'm sorry you had to find out this way. So, as selfish as we can be, I find it a wonderful thing. And part of the good news today that even when James and John are selfish, even when they say, teacher, why don't you do what we want for a change? Jesus responds, well, what is it that you would like me to do for you? See how generous and loving Jesus is. Even when his disciples make a selfish request, Jesus opens his heart to them. He wants to know how he can help them. This moment reminds me of how we learn that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It reminds me of the prophet Isaiah says that God longs to be gracious to us. It reminds me of Jesus himself saying at another time, what parent, when a child asked them for bread, would give them a stone? Or asked for a fish and the parent would give them a snake? Even when the disciples ask wrongly, Jesus loves them. Even after the disciples respond wrongly to Jesus' question, what can I do for you? Jesus keeps asking the question. On their way to Jerusalem, Jesus is passing, and the disciples are passing through Jericho, uh, Jericho, a little town on the way. And you're always going up to Jerusalem, by the way, just as a side note. That's why you hear it in the Bible, the same way each time they're going up to Jerusalem, because you are, you go up a hill, and it's set among seven mountains. So on the way up to Jerusalem, uh, they stop in, in Jericho, and there's a blind man, Bartimaeus. He's, he's a beggar. He's always outside. He's always by the street. He sees everybody coming and going. But when he hears this is Jesus coming by, he begins to shout, Lord, have mercy on me. And he's so loud and he's making such a ruckus that the people around him are like, shush, Bartimaeus, be quiet. It's, a, it's an important guy right there. And Jesus hears him and he says, no, 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 let him come. Let him come over to me. And so the people surrounding Bartimaeus relent and they, they make a path for him to come to Jesus. And he comes up to Jesus and Jesus says, he actually asks the same question. What would you like me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, I'd like to see again. And so Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And Bartimaeus regains his sight and he joins up with the disciples and becomes a Jesus follower. All because of the question, what can I do for you? Some really amazing things can happen when we have a share in asking the same question that Jesus asks. This question holds so much power and promise when Jesus asks it. 
Part of the good news for us today is that it also holds so much power and promise when we ask it too. In fact, in his sermon, Three Dimensions of a Complete Life, Martin Luther King Jr. says, Life's most persistent and urgent question is, What am I doing for others? Well, our children have asked this question today, and they've surrounded us. I hope you'll take note sometime uh, following the service at the beautiful decorations where they're hanging from the balcony or in the pictures uh, on Psalm 100, Psalm 100 interpretations surrounding us on the windows on the first level. Recently, when asked what they can do for others, our children said, Hold hands to make someone feel better. I can give food to the homeless. I share toys, food, and hug my neighbors. I like to ride bikes with my neighbors. Taking good care of the earth and animals. Include people in games. It's one of my favorites. Give people clothes. Write something positive to somebody. One child said, I give water to my neighbors when they're thirsty. And another said, share the Bible with others. I remember when a friend of mine named Nancy asked the question, what can I do for you? Nancy grew up in a world of Baptists, a world led by Baptists who were always men. And children, you may know what this feels like. Sometimes she didn't feel like people around her listened to her or respected her voice. And even though she grew up in a world surrounded by men who were leaders in the church and who always seemed to be men, she finally asked God, God, what can I do for you? At first, that meant Nancy was ordained as a woman by a Baptist church in Tennessee. But later, and, and by the way, when she was ordained, she was treated terribly. The, the men and women called her ugly names like Jezebel and other things that I can't say from the pulpit. And yet, she kept on asking God the question, what can I do for you? Because she heard God asking her that same question and it matched up these questions in her heart. So she served in churches for a while and then later in life when she was probably about my age she began to feel lost and she and her husband moved to these beautiful mountains and started anew 
but she still felt lost. She didn't know where to go. They were struggling financially, and all of a sudden, the question she kept asking, God, what can I do for you, led to an answer, God apparently saying something like, Nancy, I want you to go to prison. And so she did. She became a prison chaplain and served in that role for 13 years. Nancy, a woman, a chaplain in a high-security prison for 13 years. And one day as she was writing some memos in her office, Michael came in. Michael helped in the chapel because he thought it was one of the easier jobs in the prison to get. Kind of a privilege to work in the chapel. But he wasn't a believer. So one day she's in her office and Michael shows up and he's leaning against the door frame with this look on his face. Now this is the same Michael who was in for murder. He was against women preachers and made a habit of telling Nancy so. He only worked in the chapel, like I said, because it was an easier gig. But this particular day, Nancy looked up to see him and he said, I got to tell you something, chap. And then he started to cry and he was embarrassed. And so he left. And then he came back and he said, chap, I really appreciate you. I've been in prison for 10 years, and I don't get treated like a human being very often. And when you're in this long, you appreciate the little things, like a smile and a hello. And I want to thank you for always doing that for me. And I don't know how to say this, he said, but I appreciate being around a woman like you. And don't take this the wrong way and not in a weird way, but I respect you. I've learned a lot about God just from being around you. I'm changing. You've blessed me. And I wanted to thank you. You see what all the beautiful things that can happen when God asks, what can I do for you? And we catch hold of the same question and ask it of God. What can I do for you? Amen.